Hallelujah. Oh, Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you in worship and praise and petition this morning. We're mindful of the exhortation there Aaron brought earlier, the reminder that there are those brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ of our own family of God who suffer even now at the end of the sword for their commitment to you. Father, it's a reminder that this much is indeed true, that there are some things more valuable than life itself. And eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord is assured in our salvation. And though this life is full of pain, sorrow, and from our perspective, unreconciled questions, we trust a sovereign God who ushers us in by the power of His Son's blood to eternity the instant we leave this world. To be absent from this world is to be present with you. And we long for that day. But in the meantime, we pray that you would sharpen and equip us to be faithful to our gospel call, to lift up in prayer those who suffer for your namesake, and also that we might be willing to suffer for your glorious name. That we would be obedient even to the point of death because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. That you might impress upon our hearts such a strong commitment even today as we read your word and feel its authority cut through the distractions of our mind and remind us of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you might strengthen us to be your church militant of whom it was said the gates of hell will never prevail. We thank you, Lord, for this kind of power in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit to apply your holy word. We pray that this morning would be fruitful to that end, that you might be glorified in your equipped body. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. In a moment, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 39. This morning is our Psalm month, Sunday, the second Sunday of the month, which brings us in God's providence to Psalm chapter 39. There are 13 verses here. The title of this message will be Excruciating Pain, an intriguing title given so far the theme that the Spirit has set for our meeting, and certainly a theme that the psalmist was no stranger to, as we find in this title, it's to the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. So stand with me if you would, and let's read with David, this song, this lament, beginning in verse 1 through verse 13. The Word of God reads as follows. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned, that I spoke with my tongue. Verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. 
Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Psalm chapter 39 is a lament of excruciating pain. We sense the emotion the anguish, we sense the stress and this pent-up, escalating longing for relief from the immediate circumstances. However broad they may be, it is certain that the psalmist feels ill-equipped in any of his natural means to deal with the stress that he is under. We find words poetically describing his situation like a stroke in our language The interpretation of the affliction is like a stroke, a dehabilitating or handicapping circumstance in verse 10 that has captured him. I remember a song that I heard some time ago with some surprisingly biblical lyrics in and amongst otherwise sometimes fluffy music on Christian radio. And I remember the song lyrics saying something like, My humanity is my leprosy. I need a remedy for my disease. Someone in my condition needs the great physician. Those words ring with a similar tone as this song does. Whether it was the sin itself or extreme physical circumstances, lack of physical remedy, even illness that would bring you to the brink of death, the author of this psalm knew That deep in his core, there was a malady that he could not address. And only a supernatural physician had a scalpel equipped to take out the cancer of both his transgression and the subsequent effects of living in this fallen world and rescue him to such a degree that confidence might spread again across his face in a smile before he passed away to his home in glory. Look away from me that I might smile again before I depart and am no more. This psalm finds its surprising historic and musical situation in the hymnal of Jeduthun, if you will. Notice in the title, it's to the choir master, to Jeduthun, and just a reference for you, 1 Corinthians, Chronicles, excuse me, 16, 41 through 43. 1 Chronicles 16, 41 through 43, also 2 Chronicles 5, 12, reference psalmists. And those who were commissioned with a special job and duty, hundreds of them, choir masters and those who would rally God's people in praise, were given a task to worship the Lord with songs like this, both exaltation of praise, exaltations of praise, and also songs of deep lament. Among them was a man named Jeduthun, and we read of him. Jeduthun, with, along with others, was given a special task to spend his time and his talent worshiping the Lord for one theme, one theme, 
His steadfast love. His steadfast love which endures forever. This might be surprising given the context of this song. Do we think of God's steadfast love when we read Psalm 39? Well, I guarantee you the author did. Because he knew the steadfast love of the Lord, which is never ceasing, was the only hope on his condition. That that caused him to cry in verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. These references to the Old Testament worship order remind us of the worship leading commission represented in this title. Jebuthun and company were called to glorify God in song specifically for His steadfast love. And it is again proven here that the staggering riches of God's Word contained in such a theme surprise us that God's steadfast love is sufficient to cover any season of life. And even when we feel as low and despondent as the psalmist does, the promise and covenant yet remains. A sufficient handhold and the sea of emotional and physical tumult. Psalm 39 provides a lament for us that is a biblical way to grieve. An elegy that is a song for a funeral situation. And I'm going to give you a technical term here and I'll explain it. It is a chiastic paradox whose ideas are symmetrically demonstrated in the shape of an hourglass. When I think of that shape of an hourglass, I'm reminded of another helpful picture that helps us to do exactly as the psalmist knew he ought under these circumstances to remember how fleeting we are, to remember how fragile life is. And time on this earth is better measured in an hourglass because... It is certainly finite as a vapor and as a clock ticking. What is a chiasmus or what is chiastic paradox? In the Psalms, and Psalm 39 is no exception, we find one of the primary poetic and literary devices to be parallelism. The psalmist uses similar ideas in consort with one another. You'll have an idea and sometimes he'll repeat And in a corresponding way, he'll say in another phrase something that adds more depth and color, meaning, emphasis, and clarity to what the theme of his message is. Well, there's an interesting way that the ideas can be studied in Psalm 39. And I've mentioned this briefly in our study of Hebrews. And it's in the form of chiasmus. That is, the parallelism doesn't necessarily follow one with another. But instead, it's kind of shaped like this. The idea in verse 1 is repeated not until verse 13. And then the ideas in verse 2 and 3 have a correspondence with verse 12. And then the ideas in verses 4 through 6 correspond with 11. The idea in verse 7 corresponds with 10. And then 8 and 9 provide a central focal point. So when we read, Deliver me from all my transgressions, Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. We have a back-to-back right there idea of a parallel idea or a parallelism. And in this shape, we have kind of the shape of an hourglass, if you will. And it's just a very amazing way that the Bible sometimes shapes its ideas in a way to make its point. The term chiasmus comes from the Greek 
a letter which is in the shape of an X. And so it's kind of like connecting the dots of ideas. And as we do so, we find a theme emerging. And with particular emphasis in the center of this psalm, there's a point of focus, a center of gravity that reminds us of the gospel in verses 8 and 9. But moving out from there, there's beautiful shades of understanding to glean as well. So that will provide me my basic structure as I move through the following five points. And here's a heading for you. Five teachable moments considering pain in context. Five teachable moments in this psalm considering pain in context. There is an admission of pain, excruciating pain indeed, in the psalmist's confession here. But he has taught something and he is teaching something through his pain. Pain indeed provides opportunity to realize to a degree otherwise impossible certain aspects about himself and the nature of God that we must all take heed to learn. And this in part is why this psalm is recorded for us. So number one, the first teachable aspect. Given the mutable and mortal nature of man, we can learn the following. How to suffer, how to die, And I'd like to add two example applications. Given the mutable, that is changeable, fickle, we cannot count on ourselves. We must only count on Christ. The rock is the only thing that does not change and we are only unchangeable when we are anchored in Him. But anchored in ourselves, we are nothing more than a wind that blows and a wave that crashes about the sea. In an easily distracted and led astray in deceived fashion, we are indeed in ourselves mutable. But not just changeable, we are also mortal in our physical nature. There is a time bomb strapped to everyone's chest. Another song I remember from the past. I have a time bomb. I've strapped it to my chest. When it blows, I'm out of here. You can have what's left. There is a time bomb, as it were, fixed on every person. That is, there is a segment that God, a block of time that God knows perfectly from the time that we were born and the time that we will die. And although every one of us knows this and common sense testifies to it unequivocally, very few of us live in light of its truth. How many of us, even in Christ, knowing full well the implications of both our tendency to be very fickle and changing and our tendency to die as every human being in the grave has done preceding us save one who's resurrected Jesus Christ. How fickle are, or how likely are we in spite of that reality and testimony to forget that we are shakable and easily shipwrecked in ourselves and that we don't even know if we have tomorrow. If we remembered these things, the psalmist tells us we would know better how to suffer. We would suffer as a desperate man who cries out for his rock and his hope and his salvation. We would suffer as one not who gropes about frantically in the dark for any number of man's insurance plans, but one who knows without a shadow of a doubt that his exclusive hope is in the Lord. And that salvation belongs to him, and only in him is his hope. Verse 1, the psalmist says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. Verse 13, corresponding with it, 
in some way says, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. If we take those two verses back to back, we find an admission in the psalmist. First of all, he admits that he is frail. He finds that it would be better for him under these circumstances to bite his tongue. The psalmist knows quite frankly that sometimes it is best to do the proverbial count to ten, not to speak, because under the conditions of my uh, psyche, under the pressure of this situation, I simply can't trust what would proceed from my mouth. And he's particularly conscious of this so long as he is in the presence of the wicked. So long as the wicked are in my presence, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. I will not sin with my tongue. Sometimes suffering means biting the tongue of complaint, biting the tongue of anxiety, simply closing the mouth if it is wont to vent, especially to those who would use your testimony of angst and anguish against the name of Christ. There is a place to speak. There is a place to share. But even as the psalmist recognized, there is a time and a place for each. When we are in the presence of the world, when we are struggling with the weight of our own questions and doubt and frailty, it is best not to speak our own words. It is better to speak the words of God. Now even as the psalmist wanted to bite the tongue of complaint, he also wanted the tongue of praise to be loosed. When he says in verse 13, look away from me that I may smile again, it's a poetic way of describing remove your stroke from me, from verse 10. So take away, as it is in your prerogative and sovereign hand, the power to do so. Take away from me this great anguish of my soul that I may smile again in praise, that I may smile again, praise again, my heart might be filled with joy again before I depart and am no more. That my legacy, when I leave this earth, may my last words be your words. May I not be, may the last and final impression that I leave on others around me may not give the wicked reason to blaspheme, the godless reason to mock, but instead the faithful reason to rejoice. That even in the midst of suffering, God provides reprieve for His own and we can smile again with the assurance of His hope and salvation. How to suffer? Well, the psalmist tells us we must suffer in such a way as to glorify God. To bite the tongue if we are wont to question Him, especially in the company of the unbeliever. But to loose the tongue of confidence in Him and praise so that in spite of the pain that we are going through and the questions that plague our own mind, we are careful to guard the glory of God in the midst of our situation. The psalmist is also concerned with how to die. Remember those moments with particular interest in Scripture in light of the principles here contained where one like Hezekiah it's prophesied that his days, his final days, are upon him. And so he is given the charge to count the cost, set your house in order, because your life is required of you. 
Hezekiah offers a prayer to the Lord, similar to the psalmist, that the Lord might look away this judgment on him, at least for a time, that a smile again might return before he departs and is no more. And in this record, as with the psalmist, there's an appeal to the name of the Lord for length of days with the goal of greater glory, greater glory offered to him in the end. If you want to study how to suffer and how to die, the Bible has many examples in that regard. We go to Moses and his example, and we see him pleading for the life of the people so that the glory of the Lord might be greatly manifest through them. He appeals to God's promises to save so that the people, the onlookers, might recognize that in the longevity of this people, God is glorified and His Word is vindicated. This is how to suffer. This is how to pray. And this is how we come to die. We ought to do so as we ought in the rest of life with the goal to glorify Christ. Have you ever wondered, two example applications, have you ever wondered why the name Samson shows up later in Scripture among the faithful? Judges 16, 23 through 31 might answer the question alongside, again, the principles of Psalm 39. What was Samson's last dying wish? Well, when we turn to that book of Judges, perhaps I'll turn there. You can go there with me if you like. Judges chapter 16 We see a man, in many ways, he lived his life unfaithfully. He had a deplorable record in covenant relationship with the Lord. When it came to the end of his days, though he had been struck blind by the Philistines, the source of his strength had been stripped from him, and as much as his hair was cut and his Nazarite vow was broken, he had one last request at the end. He asked for a moment that the circumstances might change and that his strength might return for a particular purpose. Verse 23, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And you see this false glorification of what is no God. Samson is in a worship service where the god Dagon is receiving glory falsely from the lips of pagans as the one who had delivered Samson into their hand. The tables are about to be turned. Verse 24, And when the people saw him, they, the Philistines, praised their god, speaking of Dagon, for they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravenger of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, and he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entered them. They made him stand between the pillars. Verse 26, And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which this house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Verse 28, Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grabbed the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against him, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So more than those whom he had killed, 
So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Then he was taken and buried. And so you see a highlight relative to the rest of Samson's life right at the very end where he asked of the Lord, look away from me for a moment, the strength that has been stripped away, that I may smile again for a moment as it were before I depart and am no more. In spite of Samson's deplorable life by many measures, this was indeed a striking end and an example application of recognizing the glory of God is more important than our own life. And in spite of our mutability, our changeable and fickle wantonness given to sin and transgression, in spite of our own mortality, Sometimes God is pleased to use us in a mighty way. And sometimes in our death, we do more good for the kingdom by His sovereign purpose than we ever did in life. But it is important that we learn how to suffer and how to approach death in order that we might glorify God in the end. A second example in this one is in more modern history and perhaps a little bit better gospel application to learn from in some ways one of the founding fathers of this nation, both politically and spiritually speaking. It is agreed among historians Patrick Henry would be found among that list. On Patrick Henry's own deathbed, he said the following, Doctor, I wish you to observe how real and beneficial the religion of Christ is to a man about to die. I am, however, much consoled by reflecting that the religion of Christ has, from its first appearance, in the world, been attacked in vain by all the wits, philosophers, and wise ones, aided by every power of man, and its triumphs have been complete. He later wrote in his last will and testament this testimony to his family. This is all the inheritance I give to my dear family. The religion of Christ will give them one which will make them rich indeed. I wonder how many people die with that kind of confession and confidence that Patrick Henry had. Doctor, I wish for you to see how a Christian approaches death's ultimate door. I'm sure there are many who have had to repent with the way they've handled suffering as the psalmist did. But it's amazing to see the power of the Holy Spirit change and sanctify a soul so when it comes to that final moment, And in that particular test, they might even face the inevitable enemy in the face and recognize and testify with the confidence of a blood-bought believer that death is defeated in Jesus' name. And thus, in living and in dying, by the Spirit's enabling power through the gospel, we have the ability to take a message cue from the psalmist we would ask for God to give us grace to recognize our frailty, but to place our hope in His strength so when we are tested, we can show how to suffer and how to die as a Christian. Another teachable moment considering pain in context. Given the reality of pain and suffering, Psalm 39 has some lessons to share. What are lessons that we can learn through the reality of pain, excruciating pain indeed, and suffering. First of all, lessons on speech, escalating pain, 
and an appeal to covenant. Verses 2 and 3, the psalmist says, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. And corresponding to that later in verse 12, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. There's a lesson on speech related to suffering in this text, and it relates a lot to the story of Job. How did Job react to his suffering? He made a commitment at first that was difficult for him in his mortality and mutability to keep. And that commitment was something, or it was a frame of mind represented in the statement, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But as the course of this suffering came upon him in unfathomable degrees, as he is separated from loved ones and property and confidence and even from his own frame of mind and perhaps sobriety of thinking and psychological resolve, this escalating pain takes a toll on Job's speech and he begins to vent some. He begins to cry out in ways that he later repents of. But when we turn to the end of the book, it closes similar to the, again, the theme of Psalm 39 with Job's mind and heart set right according to the charge of the Almighty. And in Job 40, verses 3 through 5, he says, I have spoken, I will speak no more. He has been silenced by a testimony of the sovereignty of Almighty God. And that revelation of God to Job brought perspective back in a moment. And in that confession, he said, I will close my mouth. I will submit to you. You are my Lord. And no matter how deep the suffering or how great the blessing, the fact that you are God and I am your subject does not change. I trust myself to you. I throw myself on your mercy. The reality of pain and suffering in the life course of a believer will certainly place great stress upon us. But I'm thankful for the record even of repentance as there is also a record of faith in the Scriptures of those who have been trained by it. And in the end, we look to them as evidence of the Spirit's keeping power under the most difficult of circumstances. Notice that the psalmist has indeed, like Job, escalating pain. It's as if he stuffed it inside and it's about to boil over like a volcano. I was mute and silent. I held my peace, but to no avail. He's about to vent. He's about to boil over and explode. My distress distress grew worse, he says in verse 2. And then verse 3, my heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. And he recognizes and confesses that under these circumstances, he boiled over, venting from the inside. But notice the corresponding thought again in verse 12. This escalating pain was matched by escalating prayer. As he begins to boil over, how does it sound? Well, as his confession is shaped by the Spirit's work, we hear him saying in verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord. And then, by greater measure, give ear to my cry. A prayer has become a cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. 
And so as the stages of pain increase, so does his desperation in prayer. Having nowhere else to turn, not wanting to cry in the wrong context, he goes to prayer and pours out his heart before the Lord. And that is certainly the place to do it. To confess your weakness and dependency on Him. To spill over with the emotion of the soul in an honest way. But to do so as a step of faith that the one who hears, understands and answers and has suffered greater than you in His Son Jesus Christ. And because of that is able to make intercession for you and to grant you reprieve from the pain on the inside. So there's lessons here, given the reality of pain and suffering. But notice, finally, under this point, there's an appeal to covenant. For I am a sojourner with you, the end of verse 12, a guest like all my fathers. Who am I? Who am I? Some might be questioned to doubt who they are in Christ when they are under the most extreme of tests. Am I rejected of the Lord? Am I become the object of his wrath in the way an unbeliever is in perdition? Am I an outcast? Am I one who will never be comforted again? Am I a perpetual exile from the security of comfort and peace? Am I a reject? These ideas torment the mind when we are put to the ultimate test in these kinds of circumstances. The psalmist reminds himself who he is, not based on what he feels, but based on the word of God, on the covenants that are etched indelibly and forever immutably in the word of the Lord. He says, I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. When he says sojourner, it implies a traveler whose destination is alien to where he is. I am just passing through this circumstance on my way to greater glory. And not just a traveler who experiences for a time the despair of this life, but has rest eternal like the word prophesies in Hebrews 4 to look forward to. But one who does so not alone, and not as one who grieves without hope, but a sojourner with you. That is a sojourner with Yahweh. Almighty God and His plan and His purposes. If you are in Christ, you are a sojourner with Christ. And He whom for the joy set before Him endured the cross will give you grace to endure and you will share in the peace that His blood purchased so long as you confess in the deepest core of you what is actually true of your situation in Him. You are a sojourner. You are indeed alien to this world, but you will be at home with Him ultimately one day in the perfect peace His blood purchased for you. He says, I am a guest like all my fathers. A guest meaning someone who doesn't live here permanently, but will stay here just for a time. But like his fathers who went before, he's pleading the promise to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. He's pleading the promise, perhaps, depending on the time when David, assuming him, he is the author, wrote this. He's pleading according to the promise of perhaps 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 17, where Nathan came to him and said, 
that there will never la- you will never lack a man on the throne, but your lineage will continue forever. David knew from the promises of God that he had a destiny that was alien to his temporal experience of suffering and pain. Hebrews 11.13 says as much of all the faithful warriors of old, and as a type and a picture and encouragement of all the faithful warriors who share this world with them at any course in time. But also in 1 Peter we read these words that remind us of our situation, our identity and relationship to our current circumstances. 1 Peter 2, verses 10 through 11. These familiar words come to mind. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so here again, the appeal is made towards righteousness and faithfulness, confidence and hope on the basis of God's covenant of mercy with His own. These who Peter wrote to had received mercy in the blood of Jesus Christ. And now he urges them to recognize They are not permanent residents of this veil of tears, but indeed are passing through as sojourners, guests and exiles, and therefore we can endure with God's help. And point number three, five teachable moments considering pain in context. We've mentioned the mutable and mortal nature of man. We've mentioned the reality of pain and suffering, but also given the imminence of death, what does Psalm 39 have to teach That is the reality, the certainty of death. The fact that death is systemic and an inescapable condition, physical death anyway, to the human condition. Verses 4 and 6 are mindful of our mortality. Remind us of our mortality as we read, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are all in they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Corresponding with these thoughts, we read in verse eleven When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. And we put those two ideas back to back. We see one in ecclesiastical form, if you will, the futility, vanity of vanities. All is vanity if there is only life under the sun. If life is the acquisition of material things and circumstances, promotion, security, likability, whatever else we're want to pursue in the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life and the lust of the eyes, then it is nothing but turmoil that heaps up wealth for others to confiscate. We work hard so that the thief can pad his pockets. That is the sum of life. Like Shakespeare says, the idiot with sound and fury. It's a show. It's a sham. It's worthless and pointless so long as life is lived only under the sun. But the psalmist does not stop there because he is a believer. 
And he understands not only is life not lived only under the sun. Life is lived under the fear of the Lord. But he also sees purpose and what man would otherwise be utterly despairing over. He sees it as discipline. He says in verse 11 again, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Given the imminence of death, given the fact that it is a reality for probably every one of us in this room that we have lost a loved one, what are we to learn through that circumstance? Well, this is a funeral song. It's a lament, and it's a surprising one. Did you know, historically, psalms like this would have provided the text for a funeral. I haven't heard this psalm proclaimed at a funeral these days, and perhaps it's because we've lost the purpose of why God brings calamity in the first place. And one reason is, the psalmist is quite clear, that we might know the measure of our days. Too many times in our experience, funerals become, even a funeral, mind you, self-centered. An opportunity to celebrate and exalt a person for their sake. So that that memory might live on inside of us. And the purpose of that moment is for us to focus on that individual and their legacy. Now, I do, would be the last person to say that we should not honor the life of one who has a testimony truly to offer. But I also want to be the first to say even funerals must glorify the Lord. And one thing that is glorifying to the Lord is to recognize in the imminence of death our own limited life span. It ought to shake us awake. It ought to remove cobwebs. It ought to cause us to measure our own days, to realize how fleeting we are. Because for a brief moment, perhaps the scales can be removed from our eyes and we might ask life's most important questions. And we might look for answers in the only place they can be found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is why in old funeral liturgy, you'd have quotes from Genesis, for instance, dust to dust, and so on. Because it would be a reminder of the frailty of life. Death serves a sobering purpose for the believer to remind us That if we live as if this life is all there is to live for, we are as vain as the moth and the rust and everything that it corrupts. But if we live for something else, then death is merely a celebration of passage for us to a place of eternal life. A favorite quote of mine, J.C. Ryle He said this, surely there are none so mad as those who are content to live unprepared to die. Surely there are none so mad, so insane as those who are content to live unprepared to die. When we step through the walls of this building into our culture and world today, how many among the hubbub and bustle of the cultural interaction of American life are mad? are insane, are not sober-minded by this measure. They are going about their daily affairs unprepared to die. History records 
a home that was built in 1636 and there was a timber. You know, there's different eras in history that were more wont to profound things, that were more given to profound truths than other periods of history. And I do not necessarily, and I do not consider our historical era a high watermark. But in the Puritan era, people would actually write Latin phrases on beams of their building. And there was a building that was built in 1636 in Cheshire, England. And on that beam was inscribed this phrase in Latin, You would weep if you knew, you would weep if you knew that your life was limited to one month. Yet you laugh while you know not, but it may be restricted to a day. A perspective point to be sure. You would weep if you knew that your life was limited to one month, yet you laugh while you know not, but it may be restricted to a day. That beam is in a pub. That beam is in a place where people consume, consumed liquor at the time a historical record was recorded. While throngs were given to drunken revelries, as testimony and judgment above them was written that phrase in so many words, with the psalmist and with J.C. Ryle, there are none so mad as you, five or ten feet below this beam, that live unprepared to die. Now, death is a great robber, and it's so tragic, and it's difficult to deal with those circumstances. But one thing to be thankful for in death is that it brings perspective to those whose eyes can be pried open by the Spirit's crowbar of reality under those circumstances. Let us not waste the opportunity of contemplating suffering to draw our own attention and the attention of others to this sobering truth that we are not promised tomorrow. But we are like a vapor. We are like a breath. We are like a shadow. How fleeting are we? And only what is in Christ endures. Everything else is like treasure gathered in a heap that makes it easier for the moth to feed. Thank God for the merciful moth revealing our misplaced affections. Imagine by extension this analogy. You go home and one of your prized possessions, a collectible or something, you pull it out of the drawer and moths have eaten it away. How do you feel about it? Well, that merciful moth has just revealed to you perhaps something of your wayward affections. Nothing that we store up by way of treasure in this life can we take with. So, uh, Luke 12, 20 through 21 talks about the parable of the rich fool who tore down his barns to big, bigger ones. You fool, today your life will be required of you. In the Sermon on the Mount we read, do not store up for yourselves treasures where things like moth can corrupt, but instead store up treasures in the kingdom of God where neither moth nor dust or rust or any of those things can corrupt Because the message is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Rust, decay, the thief, pain, and even the knock of death on the door can be like the merciful moth revealing misplaced affections. Where is our treasure? Where is our hope? And where is our security when those circumstances come knocking? For given the sovereignty of God, The psalmist finds refuge in the sovereignty of God. He proclaims the sovereignty of God. And given the sovereignty of God in these circumstances, Psalm 39 teaches us that salvation belongs to the Lord. He is our ultimate remedy. Verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. 
corresponding to verse 10, remove your stroke from me, I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Remove your stroke from me, I am spent by the hostility of your hand. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Since the Lord is ultimate and in control of all circumstances, to Him and Him alone we make our plea for help. To Him alone do we bring our highest petitions. The Lord alone can save us and Him alone is our hope. Everything else is a futile remedy. It is simply masking the symptoms but is no cure. For certainly the ultimate remedy for futility and vanity The ultimate reality for the fleeting nature of this life, the fact that it is but a few hand breaths. Look at your hand in front of your face and from this finger to the end of your pinky crossways, that's a hand breath. It's a small unit of measure. It's a gesture and an idiom that would have communicated your life is like this. I'm holding my first finger and my thumb just a centimeter apart. We squint our eyes and we hold our fingers up to our eyes like this to indicate almost nothing, a hair's breadth. In a moment, it's gone. With the futility and vanity of the strongest things to rely on outside of God being nothing but the measure of a hand breath, where can ultimate remedy be found? Well, the answer is clear. Only in the eternal and self-existent one. Only in the one who created all things and as such is the uncreated cause of this earth. The author of the very trees that we appreciate and the food that we consume and the sun that rises and sets. The sustainer of all those natural systems by the word of his power and by his directing hand and providence. And not only that, the author and finisher of our salvation the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. The futility and vanity of the short span of life, its frailty and its fickle nature, there is an escape, there is a refuge, there is an oasis of security, but it is only in I am. That name of God's self-disclosure which indicates I am, I am, and Am and I have been, I am and forever will be the eternal self-existent one, God Almighty. I mentioned Genesis 3.19 earlier, which indicates in judgment over man as a consequence for his sin of eating of the forbidden fruit that of dust he came and to dust he will return. There is vulnerability at the beginning of life in a dramatic, striking sense, and there is vulnerability in the end of life in an even more striking way. Thus, the two most ultimate points, critical junctures of human destiny, we ourselves have no power and no strength. We had no power over our birth. We are utterly dependent, and we have no power at death. We are utterly dependent. And so that is the truth. In birth and in death, the frailty and the dependency of man is seen and clearly proven and demonstrated at the most critical junctures of our life. If that cord is not cut, if the baby does not receive food, if he is not connected to the nurturing of his mother, will soon pass away. 
And so are we at the end of life, once our heart ceases to beat, if breath no longer fills our lungs, if the corpuscles in our veins do not continue marching one after the another, another bringing oxygen to every member of our being, we give up the ghost. We return to dust. Thus we prove in our vulnerability, our, our vulnerability at the most critical junctures of human destiny, that the sovereign God is our only hope. Salvation belongs to Him, and He is our ultimate remedy. This brings us in closing and in final point to the center of gravity, if you will, what I've identified in my own study anyway, of Psalm 39, verses 8 and 9. The main idea, the succinct theme, and the powerful message of this psalm is here stated, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. The psalmist cries out for deliverance from his sin. Deliver me from all my transgressions. He understands that that is his most fundamental need. Deliverance from sin, the first cry of gospel confession. I am a sinner. And here at the feet of Christ, pleading his merciful blood alone, I make my, I take my stand and confess my sin and trust in his blood to save And so we have a gospel, if you will, center of gravity here in this chiastic form. Deliver me of my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. In other words, may I not be a trophy for Satan that he can parade around and say, see what I've done to discourage, to destroy, to dispirit, to deceive? No, do not make me the scorn of the fool the unbeliever, the pagan, or the enemy himself, but preserve me instead for your glory. Christ endured the scorn for us. When Christ became the sacrifice for our sin, he himself took upon himself the shame and the wrath that our sin deserved. He was scorned, he was mocked, so that our shame might be eradicated, that we might be vindicated in eternal life that we might join his victory parade, that we will join him with the last laugh of history in triumphal procession before the throne of glory as the rewards of Christ's own suffering are assembled fully, finally, without exception, before the throne of the sovereign God. We would be nothing but but fodder for mockery of the foolish of this world, and a trophy in the devil's showcase were it not for Christ enduring scorn on our behalf. And what was it that saved us in this state and changed the nature of our being such that we are in Him and now not destined to imminent destruction and hell because of our sin? Well, the psalmist cries out for salvation. He says, I am mute. As he cries out for salvation, he says, I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. I am mute, and I do not open my mouth. And here, if you're following some of these messianic allusions, you can see a message from Isaiah 53, 6-7. The lamb that is led like a lamb before a shearer, he, cries, he does not cry out, but the lamb's submission to the torture and death of Calvary was indeed the work of our redemption. 
And finally, we have it reiterated that it is God's sovereign plan, for it is you who have done it. The psalmist again crying out to God. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. And as he cries, he says, it is you who have done it. In closing, and finally, contrast this last verse. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. There's a cry here, do not forsake me. Do not leave me to my own or the enemy's devices, that I might have joy again, assurance, security, salvation, and hope before I depart and pass from this life to joy eternal. When we read this final verse, we're reminded of the conditions of soul and circumstance attending Jesus' death after the assurance in the Garden of Gethsemane that this cup would not pass from him in Matthew 26, 38, 39. So as he drank it to the dregs, and as he stepped into his passion, the stroke, as it were, or the cup of God's wrath, as it were, was applied to Christ. And Christ endured the cross, and Christ voiced the most excruciating of all pain as the sins, as the judgment due for the sins of the elect were lacerated into the stripes on his back and pressed into his brow as thorns drove drops of blood down his holy, sinless face. Christ endured the cross and voiced the excruciating pain that was due to us for our own sins. Thus that deserving wrath was diverted to our substitute. Matthew 27, 46, he cried out, My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? And because of that moment, the psalmist can cry out in prayer with assurance it would be answered, look away from me that I might smile again before I depart and am no more. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the assurance and hope that we find in your word. We thank you for the clarity and the soul-searching power of the Spirit's tool, Lord, to reach into our heart and to call our attention to the reality and hope of Christ. I pray that the admonitions, Lord, that each of us need to hear will be fresh in our minds and not soon forgotten upon receiving this word. If we need to be a bolder witness for Christ in light of the imminence of death, I pray that we would be obedient in that regard. If we have not come to grips with the reality of the cross, Lord Jesus, that confesses in you and you alone is my only hope for salvation. I pray that repentance, Lord, would be granted those who have not met you today. Lord, I pray for the rest of us as we lift up our brothers and sisters who are suffering under circumstances similar to what the psalmist no doubt incurred in this psalm. And even as we stare into the future, Lord, not knowing what tomorrow may bring, I pray that we would find in these words sufficient security, assurance, and hope that we, Lord, are never abandoned in Jesus Christ. But everything that you ordain serves your glory and purpose such that you will preserve us to the end so that we might rejoice with you, Lord. Testimony to your keeping power one day with the angels and the saints who've gone before in glory singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.